you know, sometimes people, it's disappointing, even if you're working, but if you're excited about a job and you don't get it, it's, it's a bummer, right? And so I had a friend, it's like, I don't know what, I check every box, ba 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 ba. what's up? And, you know, certain states, you have to put what the comp range is in the U.S., right? And so they had that. And they were like, yeah, and I was like willing to take the bottom of the comp. And I said, did the company reach out to you or is it a recruiter? They said it was a recruiter. I said, ah, that's the rub. I'm Renata Bernardi, and this is the Job Hunting Podcast, where I interview experts and professionals and discuss issues that are important for job hunters and those who are working to advance their careers. So make sure that you subscribe and follow, and let's dive right in. Have you ever been to Australia, Kyle? Mm, I haven't. I want to, but I haven't yet. We have lots of Americans in Melbourne at the moment because we have the Australian Open happening. I don't know if you follow tennis, but yeah, really interesting. I went on the first night at Road Labor Arena and I saw Djokovic play against this. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I saw him play against this young gun and he he won, but it was hard. But one of the things that you're going to understand this story relates to you. One of the things that I spoke to my husband about, because we've been going for so many years, and I told him, remember when... There used to be eight people sitting around the court to call out the ball. So you had these eight jobs that have been replaced by technology because the courts now in Melbourne, and I think in other big tournaments as well, are so high tech that if the ball falls outside the court, you don't need someone to call it out. There's technology built into the court that calls it out. And nobody challenges that anymore. So all that John McEnroe banter that used to happen in the past, it's in, it's out, all of that. You can't argue with a robot. Can't argue with a robot. Can't argue with a robot. And eight people lost their jobs. And these were people that we used to see year in, year out. They would be always the same sitting there. And there was this one situation where Serena Williams had a big fight with one of them. And that woman, I think it was in the U.S. Open, but we would still see her every year there. And I'm like, oh, that's the one <laughs> that got that big, you know, that's speech from Serena Williams. But these people lost their jobs and tech is everywhere. It's everywhere in the workplace. It's everywhere in HR and recruitment. And you, with your technology, you, you know, you're great person to be sitting here with me today to discuss HR technology. My audience, I think, is aware of ATS systems, but what you and your firm, Creative Talent Endeavors, what you've been creating and innovating is very interesting to discuss as well. So how do you think data-driven strategies are changing this landscape where you operate of talent acquisition? So One of the things that we've seen happen when it comes to hiring through the pandemic is, you know, during the pandemic, lots of companies were going on hiring sprees, the war for talent, and you compound that with the fact that, you know, for a certain amount of time, it was like, I can't be in the same, you could be down the street, but, you know, we'll breathe each other's air, we'll die. So people were hiring executives who they'd never been in the room with, with at best, what, maybe 10 hours of interviews and some references, right? And so... Obviously, we've seen what happened. Companies have overhired. We've heard the horror stories of people, you know, taking one job while keeping their other one because, hey, I'm working remote. What could, what's the worst that could happen? And so to your point, what we've seen is that companies are still, they still want excellent hires. They still want rock stars. But what we're seeing is they're putting more care and more, how would I say, rigor into the screening process to make sure that when they're extending those offers, they are the right person with the right skill set that they need at the moment. And that is something that we're getting away from, you know, during the pandemic when everything was kind of electronic and like this. So it's a weird paradox where you have employers, they want more, you know, in-person type of, let's go back to that type of interview, but you have all these technology things that allow people to use technology. Like you can go to LinkedIn or any other site and just like click, I want apply to all jobs now, done, right? Yeah. And so the talent applicant feels like they've done something but have you really? Because companies can see that you got four years of finance experience and you applied from every job from the finance intern to the CFO. So it shows that you are not being particular about finding the jobs that you're really fit for. And so then it just washes everything out. 
And so it's a, it's a mix of, ironically enough, in this age of AI and tech, I'm finding that actual relationships are even more important in most roles. Yes, yes. And those relationships are really hard to develop after the pandemic, I believe. If the US is anything like Australia, and I think it is because I have clients there, people are not coming to work, even when they're told to come to work. I have a client that is today, right at this moment, going through a final round of interviews for a senior executive position. I'm talking C-level. He hasn't met anyone. And I asked him, this presentation that you're doing, so he's presenting to his potential future colleagues, it's face-to-face, -face, right? And he said, no, it's going to be a presentation on Teams or Zoom. And I'm thinking, man, this is really hard. These people are all, you know, on the same town. It's not like they're in diverse locations. And this is happening time and time again with my clients that are being recruited. They are still going through recruitment completely online. And then once they have been selected, they might have a coffee catch up just before signing the contract. Interesting. So yeah. honestly, we've seen more of a retrenchment to, hey, come to HQ, even if it's a job where maybe like you only have to go into work three days a week. That's cool. Yeah. Come to HQ. Yeah. Let's do the thing where you meet the team. We go to lunch. We take you to dinner. So I've actually seen more of that. And I've actually told people I know executives looking for jobs is, and I say executives for a reason. If you're like young in your career, the, the company might not have the expense to fly every analyst to head, headquarters, right? Yeah. But you're going to be, like you said, a C-level executive. I don't care if the company, I think it's almost more important if it's smaller, yeah. but you need, at a level like that, you need that connectivity. You need to know who your peers are and build those relationships. And so like, I would be worried if a company wasn't willing to invest that, what, thousand, maybe $2,000 on flight in the hotel to set that up. So if it's a money thing, I'd be worried. And if it's not a money thing, I might be more worried because they're just like, oh, we can just do this in vacuum or in silos. And that's not going to be successful usually. No. And it puts a huge pressure on the executive as well, because usually when you're at that level, you might have kids in the house, you know, <laughs> it's summer holidays here. So of course his kids are around, they're not in school. So he booked himself a hotel to actually do this properly and not be interrupted because if it's going to last an hour, an hour and a half, the chances of him going through a situation like that BBC interview, it's quite famous now when the little girl <laughs> just opens the door and then everything becomes quite hilarious. So those situations are... I was going to say that thing, I love that. I know exactly what you're talking about with the... Yeah. But it, it's so funny because that was pre-pandemic, right? Now, if that happened and that never happened before, it wouldn't go viral because we've all had the dog poop on the floor and the cat comes in. Yeah. We're used to it. But back then it was like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this is happening. Whereas now someone's like, oh, that's my kid. Anyway, let's go over the PL report, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yesterday I interviewed a recruiter coach. So I've already interviewed Lou Adler. I don't know if you know who he is. Of Pretty famous. Yeah. So I've interviewed him a, a while ago. And this week I interviewed the equivalent of a Lou Adler, but based in Australia. He's quite famous here. And he was explaining to us how recruiters get paid. Right. And I think for a job candidate, for a job seeker, it's so important to know how the agent that is in between guy is being rewarded for finding mm -hmm. you or another candidate. And we went into a lot of detail, how the recruitment firm gets paid, how the recruiter <laughs> gets paid. Those are two separate things. And, you know, the, the fact that they, they really want you to stay and that is attached to the contract that they sign is that you stay in the role for six months, 12 months and so forth. Now, you came up with a different way of working with your clients who are the employers, right? Why did you come up with a different way? What triggered you to initiate that? Thank you for asking. And I won't say that retained executive search is a scam because it is not, but I will say it's like a casino and the house always wins, right? And so I was trying to figure out how can we creative talent endeavors differentiate ourselves and add value to the experience. And so I started to think about, well, how did like this 33 and a third become the gold standard of executive search, retained search fee? And then I realized it's just the highest amount they could get clients to kind of agree that they're willing to pay. I've seen search firms do 40%, 45%. And so I said, well, each search is discreet, right? Like doing a search is not like manufacturing widgets. A director of HR for a $5 billion company is going to be different from an SVP of finance for a $800 million company, et cetera. And so what we just talked about was what really gave me my aha moment. 
if you tell me, Renata, that we're going to do a search and the company is based in Dallas, Texas, and the person has to be in the office five days a week and in Dallas, Texas, versus that exact same role, same comp, and they can be anywhere in the United States. If you say anywhere in the United States, you've exponentially increased our ability to find the person more quickly because there's more people to talk to, right? Mm -hmm. Which means that we'll finish it more quickly and then our recruiters can take on other searches so we can make even more money because, hey, capitalism, we're American. But here's the thing. In the current state, it treats every role like a commodity. So a search firm, first off, is incentivized to bring the client the most expensive talent that they are willing to pay. Because if you're going off a percentage, that's the original sin of this measure. We are incentivized to give you the most expensive person you will accept. So if we have a role and you say, hey, I don't want to pay more than 400K, but we know that if you meet Renata who wants 475, she's such a rock star, you're going to hire her anyway. We may have someone for 350. The search firm may have someone for 350 who could do the job amazingly, but is it in their best interest to give you that person? I would argue for a firm that's really trying to build relationships and show their value. Yes, but that's not the way it's set up right now. We get you all excited about the expensive person. And because it's based on salary, we make more money that way. I never felt like that was a particularly uh, client-friendly kind of environment. So that's the first part. The other part is, as I was thinking about it, I think that's led to a lot of the homogeneous build of certain companies, especially when you get to executives. Because retained executive search, most people aren't paying for unless it's director and above, right? So it's already the more kind of elite, high-paying positions. Not every company can do that and pay, pay that amount of money to get access to these clients. So it almost builds a firewall around these candidates that if you don't have enough money, you don't get access to the best talents because you got to be willing to pay six figures to hire a director sometimes. So what I said is, what if we built something that just, we're so used to like at Uber, if it's raining or snowing, maybe not snowing in Australia, but if it's raining, you know, surge pricing, or we know that if you book an airline ticket in three weeks ahead of time versus the night before, the price is going to be less expensive. We're all comfortable with these concepts of value and time. Matinees, the movie theater, right? Yeah. And so I was like, well, why doesn't search work like that? So long story short, we built an algorithm that takes into account the things that make a search special. So how competitive is your compensation? What city? Is it a desirable city or a less desirable city? Does the person need to come in the office at all, every day, et cetera? And then, so those are external points. And then we also base it on what we do really well. We're amazing at HR, finance, strategy and product, right? We don't do every single search and people will ask us and we'll say no, because we don't think we're the best firm to do it. But what happens is you go into Fairenty, you put in the basic things where you want to pay where the job is, and we will show you what 33 and a third would cost. And we will show you what our price is. Our price is not always going to be the least expensive. That's not the point. If it is more expensive and you look at it and you're like, wow, this is 39%. It's, well, you're paying at the 60th percentile for a role that's in high demand in a city that most people don't want to live in. We're just being realistic. And the other part that I really love about Fairentee is that you put your parameters in and let's say our price is 80,000 and the competitors is 110. If we bring you a candidate that needs more money than you were, you were originally scoped out, but they're awesome and you want it, that's cool. You don't pay us a dime more because why does it cost us money for you to pay? Like, why should we make more money if you're like, hey, Renata's awesome. We need to give her an extra 100K. Yeah. If anything, you made our job easier. You've made them more likely to say yes. So we don't touch that. The price is the price. And so you know that if we, you say, Kyle, all we have is 350 base for this role and I bring you someone who wants 400, you may not hire them, but you know that I'm only doing it because I feel like you need to know this person because you know that if you pay that 400, we don't get an extra dime. So it takes all of that away. And so it's been very exciting. And one of the unintended consequences we've seen is people actually reaching out about roles, the manager or senior manager level, because it makes it, you know, people, I can't pay $60,000 for a manager, but with guarantee, it might be a price that actually makes sense if it's a crucial role. And so now they're able to get access to this amazing talent that's typically kind of been, you know, held in this like little firewall of a high price executive search firms. Yes. It's fascinating. Thank you so much for explaining that to us in such detail because it gives us an insight, you know, and I, I'm saying, you know, the, the listeners here, the people that are applying for jobs and maybe being left out, maybe the reason why is in the model that you've just explained that is not advantageous for them, depending on where they live or what their salary range is. And now with your model, that there could be an opportunity for them. How did employers receive your different model? What sort of organizations sign up for an alternative? So here's the funny thing, right? 
price is important, but it's not the only thing, right? These are big jobs and you want the best person, right? Like mm -hmm. my grandfather used to always say the best is the cheapest in the long run. And so yeah. what we found out is that there's actually less, because originally we had it scoped out, you know, to sea level because we do those roles and people are like, listen, man, we're doing a sea level. Yes, we want the best deal, but quality is most important. And so like, we're not, not that money's no object, but I always laugh. Like if Tim Cook retires from Apple, Apple board is not going to be like, oh, did you see the guarantee? We can save money, <laughs> right? Like they want people who have the top 10 on speed dial, right? Yeah. So that's the case. But people who know us, that's the funny part and know that we do great quality work. Those were the first adopters just because anytime there's like something that feels like it could be a deal or something, there's a weird kind of um, dissonance that goes on where it's like, oh, it's less expensive than I'm used to, but why? Is there something wrong with it? Am I going to get lower quality, et cetera? And so those who have already paid like full freight for our work were the first adopters because it's like, oh, wait, I can get the same great service and pay less. Sign me up. So those have been the first customers that have embraced Fahrenheit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Excellent. And you're working nationally? Correct. We, well, we've done some work in Europe, but primarily it's North America. Right. Okay. What does that mean for the candidate? Does the candidate experience changes when they're working with your company using Fahrenheit? Yes, because I have friends. I mean, I'll work at research firm, so I can't tell you, but I have friends. And again, I will, you know, sometimes people, it's disappointing, even if you're working, but if you're excited about a job and you don't get it, it's, it's a bummer, right? And so I had a friend, it's like, I don't know what, like, I check every box, blah, 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 what's up? And, you know, certain states, you have to put what the comp range is in the US, right? And so they had that. And they were like, yeah, and I was like willing to take the bottom of the comp. And I said, did the company reach out to you or is it a recruiter? They said it was a recruiter. I said, ah, that's the rub. You, what you just said. And again, I don't know I wasn't in it. There could have been something different. But my conjecture is, and I've worked at bigger firms where I know this happens. Like, it's like what I said. If I can bring someone in that they're going to say yes to at the bottom or at the top, I'm incentivized at my search firm to give you the most expensive person. So like what I said to them is, honestly, you're too inexpensive because the search firm, like it didn't, they didn't see the value in that. They'd rather get the percentage of the larger bill because looking at it, it was like, yeah, you seem like a great, pick, but they didn't get screened in. And I think that's absolutely why. It's Isn't a, it funny? Because it's so counterintuitive for the candidate. The candidate is thinking, let me make myself cheaper. <laughs> yep. But the search firm is like, mm, I don't like that commission. I like the person who was making more money. It's executive search is a very, I can't think of many other industries where you can agree, you can get your client to agree to pay an arbitrary percentage because the percentage is just like it's the most you can get someone to pay, right? So an arbitrary percentage. And again, people say, this is our goal. We want to pay this, but very rarely is like the target comp the exact. Sometimes a little bit less, sometimes a little bit more, but it's very less, very rarely the exact. Mm -hmm. And so you convince your client to accept an arbitrary percentage of an unknowable future compensation that we have the most impact in drive, mm -hmm. right? Like I've had people say like, oh, the search firm just said, we can't find people to do this job for this amount. Because sometimes we get roles after, you know, it's been an unsuccessful search with another firm. And I'm like, I don't see that. And then they tell me the firms, I'm like, oh, certain firms don't get it. They don't really care if it's not going to be at least $150,000. Maybe someday CTU will be there, but we are not like that. And so basically I was told, I was like, it wasn't worth their time. Yeah. Versus they couldn't really find someone at that level, like that comp level. Because sometimes search firms will go in. The first thing they tell, oh, you got to raise the comp. You got to raise the comp. And yeah. clients are like. What are you talking about? This has been, no, no, trust me, trust me, trust me. And you're hiring an expert, you trust them. And that's the trick. You actually get an awesome person. But like I said, it's like, if you go to someone, you're like, I would like a Honda Accord. And they're like, but here's a Mercedes. If you, once you drive that Mercedes and if you can afford it, you're like, oh, this is awesome, right? But you would have been <laughs> just as happy with that Honda Accord and could have used some of that money to maybe get two Accords versus the one Mercedes. So like, that's the thing. People are still happy because ultimately you do get an awesome person. It's not that you're not, you're getting overcharged in the, in the fact that the person wasn't valuable. They didn't deserve that compensation, but it's like, but was there the person who could rock the job at the exact compensation that I was hoping for? Probably, but the search firm didn't show you that person. Yeah. One thing that you mentioned in all of this that I think the listeners are thinking, I don't know how much I'm valued. I don't know how much I'm worth. I don't know what my salary range is. I think that's the biggest issue with every candidate. Especially now, I think that we're going remote and they can work from anywhere. So if they are in, I don't know, a regional town, but they can work remotely for a larger organization. If they had a job in that regional town that was paying them 80000 could they now be 
asking for a hundred because it's a global firm and you know like they really are not aware of their how to benchmark themselves what would you recommend candidates do some some easy things is go to because like i said do california do new york states where they have to show salary ranges right yeah, now yeah. sometimes companies will be a-holes and they'll be like salary starting at fifty thousand dollars to a million dollars right because they just want to be dicks and obfuscate it but yeah. most companies put a put a reasonable range. So like if you're doing something like you're making 100K and you see multiple things saying the range for this is 130 to, hey, you're probably being underpaid and that is data that you can use. That's number one. Of mm -hmm. course, you can go to Glassdoor where they have salaries. But one other thing, this is something you have to have when it comes to you. But like I know a lot of people when recruiters reach out, they don't respond because maybe it's just like, oh, I don't, the job doesn't make sense or I don't know the company or just like, hey, I love it here. I don't want to move. I always say, take the call. Because you want to know, especially if you've been at a company for five plus years, mm -hmm. or long getting to double digits, it just happens. Your salary starts to lag and you're kicking butt, but you're making 20, 25% less than someone outside because it's a conundrum I've never been able to solve. But companies will not pay someone who's kicking butt an extra 25% to get their salary right. So that person leaves mm -hmm. and they spend the exact same money hiring basically a stranger that they've just interviewed. So I would say, Take the call from the recruiter and just understand if you are being comped correctly. Because yeah. especially if you've been in a company for a while, because things change. And the one caveat I'll add about remote is remote can be great. Our company is fully remote. It gives you as the employer the opportunity to hire not just the best talent in your backyard, but the best talent anywhere. Mm -hmm. But candidates slash employees should also be cognizant. Like if it's a fully remote company like ours, it's not a big deal. But if it's like, oh, you know, 80% of the people in the office, you can be remote. Just understand that we're human beings and not, you know, being able to play at the company kickball game and going to the wind downs, like people don't know you as much. And so by no kind of nefarious means, your career may not excel as quickly as the person's in the office just because they get to build more of a relationship with people, more of a rapport. And if they suck at their job, no. But if your guys are like kind of neck and neck in performance, they will likely probably rise higher because at the end of the day, we are social. We're human beings. Yeah. And people, oh, I loved having a beer with Renata. That was so funny. I know her versus like, <laughs> oh, I love Renata's background. We see her every week on the call. She's got some really cool art, but I don't know anything else about her. You know, <laughs> so I say to people, just yeah. be cognizant of that. It can be great yeah. to work as an employee. You don't want to find yourself out there in a silo because that will have the effect on your career that you probably did not want. Yeah. All right. You know, a lot of people was let go last year right like we have a lot of people looking for work at the beginning of 2024 when we're recording this episode some of them didn't see it coming at all and probably you know are not really prepared for the job market what do you think are the biggest things that let's say you've stayed in an organization for five years over the pandemic right now you're having to look for work what are the biggest changes that people should be aware of in recruitment and selection that did not exist in 2019. So the level of LinkedIn existed, right? But like the level of like, I've been on LinkedIn since like you had to convince people like, no, the, oh my God, my boss, they find out they're going to think, no, it's not that right now. Like everyone's on LinkedIn. And so what's happened is it is created, I think, a sense of false accessibility, right? Mm -hmm. So someone follow friggin' Mark Zuckerberg on LinkedIn and be like, oh, I'm going to send him a DM and like not going to see it. Like, yeah. It's not the same yeah. thing, right? And so yeah. I think that it's going to be anachronistic perhaps. But yeah. what I've seen is, is working more now for people looking for jobs is going back to the pre-pandemic. It's the shaking hands and kissing babies. <laughs> That's part of the kissing babies and shaking hands. But no, yeah. I'm serious. It's in-person kind of relationship building. I have found, found that like, I feel like people crave that maybe if not more than before, but as much as before. Yeah. And it can feel like Oh my gosh, now that we have LinkedIn and Glassdoor and Indeed and all these things, I have access to limitless jobs, right? But at the end of the day, if a human being doesn't see your job, so so let's say this for job seekers. Mm -hmm. Apply for a job. Let's say this, this is typically gonna happen. You apply for a job, you're the 130th applicant. It's been open mm -hmm. for six. That week, the search or that's the company has got their four hopefully final candidates for their final round interviews. And the goal is hopefully we'll make an offer, they'll accept it, and we're done. So when that recruiter, the recruiter is working at that company, they're not going to spend time. Like you could be a hundred out of a hundred of the KPIs for that role, but you apply too late. They're not going to spend their energy going back to that because it feels like it's in good shape. They're going to work on the brand new search where they have zero candidates, right? Yeah, yeah. 
And so one of the things I tell people, and I never had a problem when people did this, when I led uh, talent acquisition for young brands, sometimes people would apply for the job on the website, but they either email me or hit me on LinkedIn and say, hey, Kyle, I applied for this job. I'm really interested in it. I just want to let you know. And when people do that, they're not trying to skip the line because I hate when people would, they wouldn't apply for the job. They'd just be like, oh, I'm going to skip the line. And like, you're going to talk to me on LinkedIn and think I'm yeah, awesome. Yeah. But whenever people did that, I 100 made percent either myself or one of my recruiters looked at the resume to make sure they're a fit or not, because I appreciate they did the right thing, but they're doing the extra bit of like human being. I understand that someone, I tree falls in the woods type thing. Right. So I was, well, even when we have all this technology, think about the people that you like and more importantly, the people that like you, because the example I always give is we'll go back to Zuck. You're at a conference, you're stuck in an elevator for five minutes with Mark Zuckerberg. You start talking about food, soccer, taekwondo, whatever. You're like, oh my God, this is crazy. He's like, oh, here's my card. Hit me up sometime. Let's talk again, right? You're on cloud nine. You're already daydreaming about being the next Sheryl Sandberg or whatever, right? <laughs> By the time he's in the private jet, he's dealing with billion dollar questions. He has forgotten about you. Mm -hmm. So uh, yes, he could change your life. He can make you generationally wealthy. He has no impetus to do so after a five minute meeting, right? What? Mm -hmm. Let's say there's someone who worked for you five years ago and they had a great relationship with you. You love them, not love them like that, but you valued them. It was a really good relationship. And they're now an associate finance manager at Meta. That person is going to find that job that you're interested in. They're going to make sure that the HR team, they, they sit it through the internal, like, you know, employee referral program. And they're going to, hey, HR, not, not, not. Hey, right. Well, not his resume. We, it's been two weeks. She hasn't heard anything. You know, you guys want us to do this, but it doesn't work if you don't talk to the candidates. Right. Like I've done that candidates, people care. Yeah. And so I still have to say it's the strength of the relationship is so much stronger than the influence that the person has if you have a weak tie. So that associate finance manager will likely be more powerful in you getting that job at Meta than the five minutes with the guy who owns the company. It just is what it is. And so Absolutely. some people get excited and they shoot for the top, but like I've seen people get jobs through EAs that supported them and thought they were awesome. So they tell their new boss, oh, I know so-and-so in my old company. And that's how they get the job from the yeah. say electronic assistant, from the executive assistant. So I just want people, again, it comes to relationships and the people that you really know and the people who know you and will, will vouch for you and support you. I have two comments to make that completely validates what's happening in my small sample of clients because the clients that are doing better now at the beginning of 2024 are the ones that took my advice and attended conferences late last year and had conversations with their colleagues, expanded their network a little bit by meeting new people, but met people from their profession that they hadn't seen in a while because that's what the pandemic did. The pandemic it just removed some of those connections. By attending a professional conference, you can rekindle connections again. And they are much better and more advanced in their search than the ones that did not attend conferences or did any one-on-one -on -one catch-ups. And the others that are home applying for jobs, they think that they are doing a great job by making very good applications and doing a lot of written work. I, it's part of my, my framework for people to write down their stories and get ready for job interviews. But that's not enough. You have to combine things. and It's more holistic than that. So it really does validate that. The other comment I want to make is that example that you use with Mark Zuckerberg and a contact at Meta, you can translate that to LinkedIn because I've been telling people and teaching clients on how to use LinkedIn. Yes, you can send a message to a top voice in your profession, but that person has 400 comments under that post, whereas you know, somebody that you've worked for who is a decision maker that could potentially advocate for you or give you a job, that person, you know, does not have anything in their inbox on LinkedIn. And if you reach out to them and ask for their advice or, you know, let's have a catch up, they will be more inclined to get back to you. So you can, you can apply that example virtually as well as face to face. hundred percent. It's mm -hmm. so... It's so true. And I get it because the pandemic, you know, people were able to like still keep working great. Like a, people had a lot of success during just like the screen era, but like that's great. That is gone. Like now it's just, yeah. you know, we're doing it because, you know, you didn't offer to fly me to Australia. No, just but no, we're <laughs> doing it. It works. But most people, I don't want to say most people, but when possible, like it's just that connection. And like part of me, there's a part of my brain that's just like, it's silly, right? Like, mm -hmm. 
I do you really need to know about what I do for fun and you know my dog or whatever to understand that I can uh, help your business? Maybe, but I think what it really comes down to is you can have a company, two companies who could both do whatever the job is. Maybe one even does it slightly bigger. They have a better reputation or whatever. Companies are companies. Mm-hmm. It comes down to the individual. And so while company A may be bigger or better, have a bigger track record, if you don't have the relationship, if something happens like, hey, we just had a issue and I'm not going to be able to pay you for a couple months. When you have the relationship, then it's like, okay, versus like, you were just a number on a spreadsheet. So I guess we're going to sue you or whatever, right? Like that's where it really comes into play. Yeah, and I think it's the same thing. People, I think they often, as you talk about LinkedIn, I often counsel people like, look at all your connections because you might, even if you only have a few hundred, you're probably not tracking people every day. So you might have someone that you know who you're like, oh, they work at company B. They've been at company C for 18 months and could help you, but you don't know. So audit your connections to see, you know what I'm saying? Like who might make sense to reach out to, who you can support. Mm-hmm. And then uh, support you in your job search. Yeah, no, that's true. I'm developing a LinkedIn little training and I'm going to include that, you know, have a look at your connections because I I think that's a great idea. Just go to the connections and start scrolling down and reviewing everybody. And you may have forgotten about people and they can certainly help out. I'm thinking of changing directions here now because you made a comment I think it, I can't, I read some articles that you've written and saw some of your previous interviews, and I think this this was a comment somewhere that made me really sad, and I want to explore that with you. It's the comment you made about diversity in hiring, and the mm. fact that you saw a momentum in 2020 for the for diversifying executive teams, but in your opinion, that has disappeared now in 2023, I think it was when you made that comment. I, I wanted you to explain what's going on here. So and I'm, this is going to be a mostly USA perspective just because that's that's my frame of reference. Uh, USA so, usually dictates this thing. So if, if we lag a little bit yeah, behind. <laughs> and it's different everywhere, right? Because like, yeah. you know, diversity in Korea is you're not like how many Korean, African or African, you know, whatever, right? Yeah. Anyway, so here's what happened. George Floyd's George Floyd was murdered. Mm-hmm. Black lives were supposed to matter. People put up black squares on Instagram and they were concerned and there were calls to action and there were funds and stuff like this. Some of it was performative. Some of it was well-intentioned. But even with the well-intentioned stuff, companies did not do a good job of showing what I call the ROI of DEI. So like, explain to me why I have to wait for a woman of color to fill my finance role because George Floyd was murdered by cops. Like that's unfortunate, but why does it make sense? Now, if you say, well, um, as you know, our goals for 2024 and beyond are to increase our market share of women 18 18 to 49 in South America and Central America. So we want a Latina who understands the culture, speaks the language, has the credibility to grow that. And sorry, you know, Bob, we don't think that your 65 year old American butt can do that. You don't speak, you know, whatever. Right. So like, I think most rational people will understand, oh, that is why you're earmarking this for a specific person. Why are you saving this job for a veteran? Well, Bob, 80% of the people who hire us are veterans. So we think it makes sense for this salesperson. Oh, makes sense. But when you say we're doing this just because that's the problem and people don't measure, pick any annual report for a public company. They're going to, oh, we opened these stores and this is how they did. We launched this product. Here's how it performed. We hired uh, a new GM and here's how they did. They're going to show you the performance. You go to the diversity pages. We hired 20% more women, 12% more people of color. We went to 10 more HBCUs, but they don't give you the dot, dot, dot. And this is what happens. And so it's like, if you don't measure it, you're inferring that it doesn't matter. And so it's very easy to get rid of things that you've kind of shown don't really matter and seem performative, right? Like if you're not saying... If you're not measuring any of this, then I guess it doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. And so that's the thing. I think that's the problem. And it doesn't have to be that way, right? Like I think that there are times where it totally makes sense to have a, to earmark a role for a diverse person. Mm -hmm. And there's time where it doesn't make any business sense, right? Like if you're running a business and you need this role filled as soon as possible, someone capable, and let's say it's a tough job. It's a job where there aren't like a whole lot of people in general to say, oh, we want a woman of color just because that could possibly hurt your company, right? But I think the most important thing is it's the reactionary aspect. It's kind of what I said before. A lot of these companies, you get to a certain level, 
they're going to the same big firms, with the same pool of candidates, and there's not going to be a lot of diversity there. And so that's what happens versus just literally saying like, we're going to hire the best person, but we're not going to only you know stay in these kind of homogenous pools. We're going to expand where we go. Like, here's what I always tell people. I always joke. I say, listen, don't just think of creative talent endeavors when you want black and brown talent. Think of us when you want the best talent. There's going to be black and brown talent in there. But here's the thing. We're going to give you Consuela, Chun-Li, Lamont, and Chad. And if Chad is the best person, Chad's my fake white guy name. If Chad's the best person for the role, that's awesome. That's okay. Sometimes Chad is the best person for the role. But unlike the others, we're not going to give you four Chads. Mm-hmm. Right? And so we're going to give you the variety and the ability to say, no, Chad was the best person, but we looked at everyone. Yeah. That's all people want. I think anyone who's other, even if, if you're a white woman, if you're a veteran, if you're you know, differently abled or whatever you say, no one wants a handout. They just want to be given the opportunity to compete. Yeah. And right now it's very hard to get interviews for some of these roles if you're not at a certain profile, you went to a certain school or in that certain group of yes pile people, right? And so hopefully, because we, we said we have LinkedIn, there's such an easy way to find people in the source for talent. Slowly but surely, hopefully that continues. But I'm very curious to see how things go in the future with the DEI yeah. stuff. My joke is, you know, you've seen the probably the stuff with like Bill Ackman here, and that's education, but it's still a job, right, at Harvard. And so people, you know, Elon Musk, DIE, DEI must DIE. Cool. I posit, this is when I wish that I was like a head of HR at a really big company and they just let me do all the weird shit I wanted to do. Yeah. I would say, every, so let's say, Renata, you are the chief diversity officer, right? No. Starting today, you're the chief officer of white supremacy. But, but. You're going to do everything you did before. All we're changing is the title. So that would mean Elon Musk now has to say white supremacy has got to go. That's my dream, just to do just a little bit of of trolling. But I think that (laughs) eliminate the titles, but do the work. That's the most important part. So if someone was chief diversity officer, now they're like chief HR officer one. Cool. As long as the work gets done, that's the most important part. It's, you know, here in the U.S., we got an interesting election coming up. There's been a lot of backlash with DEI. So. It's going to be weird. It's going to be very, very real. This is very interesting, this conversation. I think the chief diversity officer is a special person because that person needs to know that ideally her or his role will disappear. Right. So you don't want to. Yeah. You know, ideally, the target for a chief diversity officer would be to disappear in three, five, ten years. I don't know how long it would take. Well, disappear. The idea. Go ahead. I was going to say disappear because the work's being done, not disappear because everyone's hacked it. But like, yeah, to your point, I can't think of any company that has a chief don't kick people in the nuts officer, right? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Because who would do such a thing? It's not such a big deal. So like to your point, you hope that the need happens where it's just like, this is just a part of the culture. Like we don't have a chief don't steal people's lunch from the refrigerator officer either, right? Like (laughs) behaviors that we hope as human beings in a society we start to do. And so I'm with you, right? It's I hope not, it goes It's with not a very commercial way of thinking, but it's very common in the for-purpose sector. So if you go into, you know, in the poverty kind of foundations, of course, these people that set these things up, they want to end poverty and they want to disappear. <laughs> I remember, oh, I forgot, what's the name of that organization that uh, protects the whales? They're quite famous. Greenpeace? Uh, Green huh? Green no, Green? no. No, no, no. They have like these WWF? Big, they no, they have these big boats. Like WWF, they have these big boats and they go to the, you know, Antarctica and 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 here in Australia and they 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 chase the Japanese boats and they, you know, throw I don't know, things at them and, and try to save the whales. And Andre, my husband, went to visit one of these boats, completely forgot the name. He's very into it. And he said, Okay, once you protect the whales, what's next? And he said, well, maybe cows. <laughs> <laughs> and then that was a bit disappointed because he's a carnivore. <laughs> yeah, he's like, oh, no, he wants to save cows next. <laughs> uh, but that, that's, I think that's the, the idea, right? So if you set up a biz, uh, an organization like that, you want to end it. And, and part of that way of thinking needs kind of built into commercial environments so that people can understand that these things need to be done and they 
they need to have a target. It could be things to do with energy and the environment and climate and diversity and so forth. But because people have that built-in structures of career ambitions and and set structures, they don't want to disappear. They don't want their jobs to disappear, and that's problematic. One thing that I thought about when you were talking about the diversity in the in the the short list is that I have feedback that I received from big employers here in Australia and also from recruiters really disappointed with the fact that they have a short list that is really diverse, but the recruitment ends up always going to Chad, you know? And recruiters feel very annoyed with that because they get a brief that's very uh, diverse and inclusive and, and, you know, full of the best intentions. But when it's time to make a decision, the decision is often conservative. And they feel good by the fact that they've seen a diverse shortlist, but they, they still choose the conservative candidate. And this employer, so this is a, you know, a very senior person who has a huge team and he brought me and, and this other friend of mine who is a, a diversity expert for a chat. He, he reached out to us via LinkedIn. We were quite surprised because, you know, he's quite, you know, senior and and I'm not going to share his name or the name of the organization. And he said, look, I'm having problems with my chief people officer. I'm having problems with every functional department because I, I can see the shortlist and I see the stats and I see the diversity. But the new hires are all basically white men. <laughs> and they it feel good about it, but I don't. <laughs> it's, it, it makes me think, and again, in our so it, it it makes you wonder. So it's like if we if we assume that the diverse candidates were impaired in terms of experience and education, mm. then it becomes just like a. I, it makes me think it's more of just like, yeah, but I can drink a beer with this guy and I kind of relate to him and da da da. Right? Or in order to kind of juke the stats and say we saw diverse people, are you filling it with women or people of color who are almost there but not the level of the Chad, perhaps. I don't think that that's it. I think that that's the feeling that they have, that they are not there yet. And and that's feedback from this CEO that I mentioned before. And it's because people see the word diversity and they do not understand what diversity actually means. It means a diverse upbringing. It means a diverse career trajectory, especially for women. It's not linear, as we all know. So you look at the resumes and you may think this woman did not, uh, is not ready yet for the role because they don't understand that the diversity is more than just her gender or the color of her skin. It's much more than that. It's broader than that. I think this is really what's playing in their minds when they're making decisions towards the Chad. I think also one of my friends um she's a uh, chief people officer at a startup and she's a, she's a person of color and she was like just being frank she was like listen because it was a very well-meaning hiring manager like i love diversity and da, 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 but like i don't understand why you know it's hard to retain the like, close we get them and she was like listen you're a great person i love you but she's like how often do you hang out with black people when you're not at work she's like when's the last time you had a black person over your house that wasn't like they're like fix something or whatever and they're like hmm. and she's like so <laughs> It, you, it's it's like you don't necessarily know or feel like comfortable because you're not used to it. Yeah. And so that like you get weird. So like let's get you comfortable with the idea and just be honest about the fact that you haven't had these relationships, but you're willing to do it and just be open and take it from there. Because that's sometimes what happens is, you know, people have the greatest intentions, but if you hire a bunch of diverse people into a company with hiring managers who don't really, and I'm not saying they're racist or anything like that. I'm just saying like, mm -hmm. they don't know how to interact and there's cultural differences. And if you don't do any work to kind of do that, then it's like, oh, see, we, we hired a bunch of women, but they don't last in this culture. We hired a bunch of, but it's like, what are you doing to make sure that you provide a safe landing space, make them feel comfortable and provide an environment where people are like welcoming and understand, right? Yeah. It's not just easy as like, cool, let's put them in here and they're just going to be one of the gang. Yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah, and, and, you know, I remember in my last job that I was hired to do, 
before I signed the contract, I asked to have another meeting with my my future boss, Ken, if you're listening, you know it's you. <laughs> and I said to him, you know, I have an accent. That is not just an accent. You know, I am South American. I am flamboyant. I like to speak. I sometimes speak too much. You know, we are going to clash. You are British. I'm a Latina, right? And I want you to be comfortable with that. And if that's okay, and I want us to know that that will be part of the the dynamic here. Because in my previous job, just before that one, they wanted the diversity, but they didn't understand it when they got it. Right. And and that, that was a lesson for me because I don't I can't expect people to just understand it. I feel like I need to educate as well. Maybe the next generation won't need to do it, but right now, my clients, if they are, you know, ethnically different from the majority of the, the hires in Australia or overseas, if they are from different countries, if they are from different countries or, or religions, if they need to go through Ramadan, if they, whatever it is that they need to do, that needs to be discussed and educated and part of the, the narrative during the recruitment and selection or during the onboarding if they feel more comfortable. Just has to be. You can't just expect pe pe people to join the dots. They won't. Well, you know, you know what's interesting? No idea is original. I'm sure it's been said a while ago. I just think about this. A lot of American football this weekend. Mm. Sports is one of those places that like people from different backgrounds, I don't want to say forced, but like think about college or professionally, right? You got people yeah. from different backgrounds, different races, different upbringings, economic, da, da, da. Figure out how to work together to be successful, right? Like I think I read a, I read a book about the, Crap! Is it the blacks? The rugby team in Australia is it like all the blacks is 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 New all Zealand. Right. They're New, New Zealand. Zealand. Yeah. Awesome. They're yeah. A very diverse team of people, mm -hmm. different backgrounds, that melded together and worked. So I'm just like, we do have these images of diverse teams working together to be successful. It's like, how can we kind of take that sports mentality where it's just like, oh, you look different from me. That's cool. You're good at your position. That's all that matters. Out of corporate right where it's just like oh it's totally cool that we look different look at an american football team or basketball team it might be majority brown or black but there's going to be a lot put this way it's going to look a lot more diverse than a boardroom in a fortune 500 company i'll put it that way yeah so maybe we can learn something from them absolutely i love using sports as analogies for for my coaching so that's that's a good way to to sort of start wrapping it up Kyle, I loved our conversation. We could just go on and on. <laughs> but this is fun. But it's been super fun. Thank you so much for taking the time for reaching out. This is just a Thank great for audience for for what you have to say, for what you're trying to do in HR technology with your firm and the way that you're engaging your employers and and consequently with the candidates as well. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you would like to share before we go? If you're looking for an executive search firm that likes to add value to their clients' data for their pricing, why don't you go on over to HireCTE.com and get your guarantee. It's yeah. a five-day quote that doesn't change. So again, your price is fixed. You can manage it. You know what it's going to be. It's not going to change regardless of what you pay your candidate. Yeah. And I'll leave that. What about the candidates? What if there are candidates that want to work with you? Because this podcast is mostly listened to in the U.S., would you believe, in the other I'm in Australia. Australia is like 30% of my audience. Really? Yes, yeah, 60% U.S. and then a little bit here and there in the U.K. and Canada. You too can go to HireCT.com and submit your resume or your information okay. so that if we have a job like that fits currently, then our recruiter will absolutely reach out. But if we don't have something that's fit in the moment, now we know. And so when we kick off a search, you will be in the list of people that we reach out to. So hireCT.com and hit the uh, contact us. And remind us the, the key areas that you operate in again. It was finance, HR, yes. what else? Finance, HR, go to market, and product and engineering. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Love it. Thank you. I may visit you one day. Please do. Well, it depends what time you come. But if you come in, the, in our summer in Charlotte, you will be very warm. <laughs> yeah, I have a, I don't know. I mean, this is, it shows I don't know my geography very well, but I have a niece at Duke University. I assume it's not too far. Two hours away, where I live. Yeah, yeah, she's loving it. 
And I do have friends in Charlotte as well. So one day I might come and have a coffee with you face to face, like we just said. Got to let me know. You got to let me know. And if I make it to Australia, that is, it's a long flight. So it's going to be a lot of planning and a lot of vacation days. But yeah. I will 100% let you know. Where are you? Are you in um, I'm Perth? in Melbourne. So Sydney is definitely the most beautiful place to go. Melbourne is the most commercial, but also beautiful. I love Melbourne. I wouldn't live anywhere oh. else. How far are they by like tra- train or car? It's a 10-hour drive. I love doing that drive. Oh, okay. So it's it like is- going from California to like Denver. You're not going to just do that in like a bus or something. Well, you don't have to. Gotcha. No, okay. it's, it's an hour and a half on the plane and, and you're there. And Melbourne is great for sports. So if you like your tennis, your GP, your Grand Prix, or the Formula One, oh, we're just great. Like everything is super central. It's not like some places where you have to get out of town to go and watch right. a match. Like everything is here. If you like your rugby's, I, I know you guys like your foodie. We have a very <laughs> weird, we have a very weird Australian football that doesn't make any sense, but we love we love sports in general, like cricket and rugby and everything. Australians are great at sports. They just love sports. So the Bells Beach tournament is happens here every February, just outside Melbourne. I, I think it's one of those things where like, if I come all the way out there, I'm not going to just hit one city. <laughs> I'm not, you know what I mean? I'm not going to be like, oh, I'll come back for 18 hours for the next. No, no, I'm going to hit Sydney. I'm going to hit Melbourne. I might hit Perth. Yeah. I mean, you work remote, Kyle. You might as well just base yourself here for a few weeks or a few months. Who knows? What's the longest plane uh, flight you've ever been on? Oh, gosh. I live in Brazil, so I'd say 16 hours. Same. That was a lot. That's a lot of time on a plane. That's a lot of time on a plane. Now I think the longest is probably 17, 18, and it's Australia, London. I think it's Perth, London or Darwin, London. It's the longest flight you can take that's a lot that's a lot that's a lot in the city, but I've, I've done it before it i'm gonna get out there i'm gonna get out there yeah and i will okay. let you know all right my friend i'll see you then <laughs> keep in for touch sure. if there's anything that you need you know from australia or any help from me from the podcast let me know we will do and by the way if you're ever like hey kyle i want to interview someone like this do you know an executive or Man, hr practitioner yes. from a certain industry or whatever just let me know of course, like if you can think of anybody that you think will be a good match for the podcast, I'm always looking for internal talent acquisition professionals. They don't really want to talk to me. Sometimes they do, but the company doesn't let them. It's a bit hard. I, I talk to a lot of startup people, but if you like if, that, or are you looking for larger companies? I think my listeners are usually applying for larger companies, not startups. I mean, for obvious reasons, there are not many jobs in startups. Sure. I would yeah. say I'll think about some of it, like maybe some of the larger companies that might make sense. Yeah. Yeah. If they're willing to talk. That yeah. Would be great. I would love to talk to them. Okay. 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 All right, my friend. Talk to you soon. Be well. Take care. Renata. <laughs>